This past weekend, Mr. Xi Jinping was selected to a third five-year term as China's paramount leader. Because the whole family had been victims of the Cultural Revolution, nobody imagined that <laughs> Xi Jinping would come and highlight the themes of Marxism, of、um, you know, kind of Mao. Mao type leadership. So, yeah, he basically surprised people. I because they want to get noticed as the ones who are following his wishes most fervently and doing、oh、just what he wants. They're really obedient children, if you will.、Um, and the other thing is that they don't. Give him accurate feedback information about what are the costs of these policies and their sense of political vulnerability because they weren't elected; they're kind of self-appointed. Yeah, and they never know when they might be overthrown. Did you know that in two thousand seven? Xi Jinping was selected as the successor in training for the Chinese Communist Party's leadership after a straw poll. This is important for two reasons. First, Hu Jintao, China's leader from 2002 to 2012, did not favor Xi Jinping as his successor. And in case you missed it, this past weekend, Hu Jintao was unceremoniously escorted out of the Communist Party Congress for all to see. And the second reason is this: after becoming party leader, Xi Jinping got rid of the straw poll process, so that unlike Hu Jintao, he would have total control over the selection of his own eventual successor. Hey there, news peelers! Today is October twenty eighth, two thousand twenty two, and this is Adele. The host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world, who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read. Watch and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories, and of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, and let's get into it. This past Monday, October twenty-fourth, a front-page Wall Street Journal print edition article featured this headline: "Top leadership dominated by Xi allies and proteges, with no clear successor." The same day's front-page headline in the New York Times print edition was more to the point: "China's leader now wields formidable power. Who will say no to him?" China's economy withstood the two thousand eight Great Recession much better than the U.S. and Europe. They certainly bounced back faster, 
and for a decade or so since, it seemed that devising policies and implementing them happened more rapidly in China, more efficiently. In contrast, Western and Asian democracies seem slower and messier. But our perception of China's unstoppable peaceful rise to superpower status has changed over time. As China flexes its military muscle around Taiwan, Japanese islands, and the islands in the South China Sea, we've come to seriously question its peaceful intentions. As for its economic rise, earlier this year in our program, Dr. Victor Xi talked about China's real estate industry and its colossal debt burden as essentially a Ponzi scheme. And just this month, a widely distributed opinion piece in the Financial Times carried this headline. China's economy will not overtake the U.S. until 2060, if ever. So what happened to China's peaceful rise? To answer that question, we have to better understand China's leadership structure, its leadership selection process, and the inherent fear that China's leaders have of their own people. To do that, I spoke with Dr. Susan Shirk, who first visited China in 1971 and has been teaching, researching, and engaging China diplomatically ever since. From 1997 to 2000, Dr. Shirk served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of East Asia and Pacific Affairs, with responsibility for China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia. Dr. Shirk is the Chair of the 21st Century China Center in UC San Diego and Director Emeritus of the UC Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. She also co-chairs a task force of China experts that issued a second report in 2019. It's titled, Course Correction Toward an Effective and Sustainable China Policy. In addition, Dr. Shirk is the co-chair of the UC San Diego Forum on U.S.-China Relations, the first ongoing high-level forum focused entirely on the U.S.-China relationship. In this episode, I will speak to her about our most recent book, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. To learn more about Dr. Shirk, including a list of our many publications, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Shirk and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Shirk, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. You have a new book, Hot Off the Press. It was published last week. Quite timely for what's happening in China now. I have a copy of it here, Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Before we get into Xi Jinping's third five-year term at the helm, I want to get a general sense about how China's leadership selection process worked, let's say after Mao, but before Xi's selection in 2012. And I have in mind a specific term that you use in your book, Dr. Shirk, selectorate. Maybe we can start with that. Sure. Well, Adele, thanks so much for giving me to talk with you about my new book, and especially from the history angle, uh, because, of course, many people are interested in all the dramatic events underway in China today. But what fascinates me and what certainly laid the groundwork for what we see today is the history 
of post Mao China. Of course, uh, yeah. Especially, especially the Hu Jintao era, to which I devote a lot of attention in the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, selection, leadership selection. Deng Xiaoping was intent on trying to prevent another Mao and another system organized around personalistic leadership in which the leader made bad decisions, basically, which were had tragic consequences for China. So um, he introduced a number of reforms to make the competition for power more systematic, more predictable, more rule-bound, um, and more collective, based on the collective institutions of the party. All sound positive. So, right. So the um, the selectorate, that is a term that I introduced to Chinese politics back in the early 90s in another book, The Political Logic of Economic Reform in China. I adopted it, however, from the political side, my colleague, Gary Cox, who studied British parliamentary politics. And what it means is the group within a political party that has the authority to choose the leader. Um, And in the case of China, that was in the arrangements that Deng Xiaoping introduced. Mm -hmm. It's the Central Committee. So the Central Committee is the group within the party that according to the party charter, has the formal authority to choose the top leadership. And that's uh, the body of about 200 regular members and 200 alternate members. Only the regular members get to uh, vote on personnel appointments. And that's uh, the group that just yesterday met after the party Congress to select who would be the general secretary of the party, the uh, people in the standing committee and in the Politburo, the disciplinary commission, the central military commission, the top leadership of the party. And and this is an inner circle sort of selection. I, I, I mentioned that as in contrast to something that you bring up in your book. I get a sense that trying to appeal to the masses, at least back before 2012, was forbidden. You you give an example of Bo, who was purged. Is I'd love to hear about that. Well, yes, uh, the rules of the game in Chinese Communist Party politics are that you should not, uh, as an individual politician, try to reach outside the inner circle to build a public following. Uh, because that could potentially destabilize the unity, cohesion of the party leadership. And Bo Xilai was a politician, very attractive guy, who um, uh, was the, the party secretary of Chongqing at the time. But he'd been doing this pretty much his whole career, but it became much more prominent uh, in the Hu Jintao era between 
2002 and 2012. And he uh, adopted a kind of nostalgia for the Mao era, all sorts of themes he uh, related to Mao. He would tweet out Mao quotations. He held sing-alongs, big sing-alongs in stadiums, uh, singing old revolutionary songs. Did that make him popular? Yes, very popular because he was also a populist. His economic and social policies were aimed at improving the lot of the have-nots. And he led a big crackdown on corrupt officials and criminal gangs. So actually, he was very popular, but we thought he was popular mainly in Chongqing and maybe a limited national following. And then much to our surprise, actually, Xi Jinping adopted some of the same platform, same style of leadership. And it turned out that there were uh, a lot more people who had nostalgia for the Mao era than we realized. Um, So let's talk about that. Now it's 2012. Uh, Xi is being considered for the top post. Did he essentially trick the Chinese elite as to his intentions after he becomes leader? Did he show himself as a progressive, pro-economic growth and sort of um, you know, internationalization and institutionalization of China, and then he flip on him. Is that what happened, you think? Um, that's a fair description of what happened. <laughs> Certainly, he surprised a lot of people, and not just people like me watching China from outside, but a lot of people inside, because he had served in coastal provinces, which are the most cosmopolitan part of China and and also economically advanced, right? Economically advanced, and uh, you have to be good at working with private business and foreign investors in those provinces. His father was a highly respected colleague of Deng Xiaoping's, who had been purged during the Cultural Revolution, came back to help. Uh, developed the special economic zones in southern China in Guangdong, attract foreign investment, was a close colleague of Deng Xiaoping's. So, and because the whole family had been victims of the Cultural Revolution, nobody imagined that (laughs) Xi Jinping would come and highlight the themes of Marxism, of, um, you know, kind of Mao-type leadership. So, yeah, he basically surprised people. I think the best counterpart in American politics would be judges who kind of try to uh, disguise their ideological leanings in order to get appointed to important uh the supreme court well i don't know but i mean sometimes we're surprised 
by the way they rule uh, after they become appointed. That's a good comparison. You're right. Um, let's fast forward to last week. What did she have to do to win a third term? Based on what you say in your book, there's no uh, sort of written law that he cannot have a third term, but it was unprecedented regardless. Well, the only written uh, impediment was the state constitution, which had said that there was a two five-year term limit for the presidency. China's top leader holds three positions. Uh, the most important one is general secretary of the party, because really this is a party rule system. The probably the second most important one is the chairman of the military commission, the commander in chief, the only civilian on the military commission who commands the People's Liberation Army and other military organizations. And then the third least powerful one is the presidency. Least powerful is, one. Interesting. Yeah. Which is, is the, um, really the main statesman who goes around representing China diplomatically, but doesn't have any powers over the budget or anything else of any importance. But in any case, that's the third position. And the Constitution had forbade uh, people from staying on more than two terms. Xi Jinping, uh, five years ago, right after his midterm, moved quite suddenly and surprised people by doing so, moved to revise the Constitution to drop that um, rule against going more than two terms. So that was the only written rule about that. On the party side, there was a precedent that had been established after Deng, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, both of them retired from the general secretary position after 10 years to five-year terms. And then we had peaceful uh, succession of power, which was, and I really want to emphasize this, this was mm -hmm. a huge accomplishment for a communist party-led regime. None of them had ever achieved regular peaceful turnover of power by the top leader. And uh, it really was a source of resilience for the regime because it reduced the risk of public splits in the leadership, power struggles um, that could destabilize the regime. Um, and one of the things that she did not do is that he didn't pick a successor in training. And that was a big deal also, right? Right, right. That's part of the um, the process that had been established by precedent and norm, not by rule. Mm -hmm. But um, Hu Jintao was successor in training for 
more than five years, actually, because he had been anointed by Deng Xiaoping. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then Xi Jinping, this is so paradoxical. Xi Jinping became the successor in training back in 2007. And oh, five years before. Five years before he took over. And um, there was a straw poll held by the party uh, before the Central Committee met, before the party Congress, in order to gain the information about which political figures were popular with the party elite. And that's so interesting to me because on the one hand, it's kind of a baby step toward uh, intra-party democracy, which Mm -hmm. during the Hu era was uh, something that Hu and Wen Jiabao and others talked a lot about as a way to gradually move toward a more democratic China to have intra-party democracy. But it's also a way to anticipate the reactions of the selectorate, the central committee, because in the Soviet Union, twice in the Khrushchev era, Mm -hmm. the central committee rejected the nominations for top leadership. Um, Oh, wow. They have the authority to do that. And also in Vietnam, they have more of a real competitive election in the Central Committee. So you can imagine if you're the incumbent leader, you want to make sure that there are no surprises when the Central Committee meets uh, after the next party Congress. And so getting the information about which among the leaders qualified by age, because at the time the retirement ages were also uh, an important parameter Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. political competition, um, which one was more popular, which was less popular. So there was this straw poll in 2007 in which Xi Jinping reportedly uh, came in first. Li Keqiang, who was Hu Jintao's favorite, uh, came in behind Xi Jinping. Oh, interesting. He ended up as premier, and Xi Jinping ended up as the number one power holder and the general secretary. But then once Xi Jinping is in power, he completely gets rid of these elections because there is a potential loss of control here and he wants to manage the nomination process, the selection process. And so no more elections under Xi. Interesting. And Hu Jintao was the gentleman that was escorted out of the Communist Party Congress this past weekend, which was a dramatic event in and of itself. Um, We'll be back after a short break to talk about Xi Jinping's cult of personality. Last year, I had a fascinating conversation with Dr. Wang, who explained to me China's one-child policy. It was a brutal policy that led to millions of forced abortions. But here's what shocked me the most. This policy was never written into law. 
Also last year, I spoke with Dr. Wasserstrom about the history of Hong Kong and how the loss of Hong Kong to the British Empire started China's century of humiliation. But to the Chinese, this 100-year humiliation and its aftermath was a mere aberration from what otherwise has always been China's rightful place in world history as a superpower. I spoke with Michael Schumann of the Atlantic Council about China's own perception of its history. He is the author of Superpower Interrupted: The Chinese History of the World. The link for those conversations, as well as my conversation with Dr. Shi, which I mentioned earlier, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Shirk. Dr. Shirk, we talked about these efforts to institutionalize government and governing in China, but that's not the case now.、Uh, Mr. Xi rules without almost any sort of friction in front of him, and I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's the general sense. And he's a paramount leader. So why was it so easy? For all this effort to sort of regress back,、um, well, that is really a puzzle, and it's a puzzle that was part of the motivation for writing my book.、Uh, I also wrote an article about this in Journal of Democracy, and、uh, to briefly explain the answer to the puzzle. Deng Xiaoping didn't go far enough to demaoize China. In other words, his so this is effort, early nineties, late eighties, right? Right. Uh huh. Um. Well, in the eighties. Okay. In the eighties. So, um, Deng Xiaoping sought to strengthen the collective institutions of the party, like the Central Committee's Selectorate, like the Politburo, and the Standing Committee. Have them meet more often, regularly, and、um, and to introduce retirement ages and、uh, term limits. But what the one thing he didn't want to do is to give Institutions outside the party, like the legislature, the National People's Congress, or the court system, the judiciary,、mm-hmm. the independent authority over the actions of politicians, because that smacked too much of Western-style constitutional democracy. And he still believed in the party, and he just wasn't willing to go that far. So, what happened as a result? What when Xi Jinping did his power play? What happened is that the Central Committee and the party elite just went along with it. They didn't. The Central Committee yesterday has the authority to say no to Xi Jinping's third term. But they, they didn't. didn't. They didn't do that,、um, and that's because the Central Committee, when you dig down and examine it as a political scientist, you see that、uh, 
although it has this authority, and I talk about its authority using the term reciprocal accountability, that comes from my political logic book, because the leaders appoint the officials in the Central Committee, and then the Central Committee has the authority to choose the top leaders, kind of like the Vatican, Mm -hmm. the Pope and the College of Cardinals. But um, all of the officials in the Central Committee are party secretaries and governors of provinces, ministers of central government ministries, uh, senior military officials, and that's basically the selectorate. But they hold their positions, their day jobs, um, by virtue of the forbearance and approval of the top leadership. So they could be fired any time by the top leadership. So they're too dependent on the top leaders to stand up and say no to the recommendations of a third term or the nominations of who's going to be in the standing committee. And then there's no outside authority from a legislature or the courts to yeah. to stop that from happening. So to say that there's no system of checks and balances in the American sense in China is, would be an right. understatement. Right. And uh, your book even takes this further. And I'm really fascinated by um, a theme that runs through your book, uh, zealous over compliance. Um, I had not appreciated the extent of it. And and here's another thing. I had not appreciated the devastating consequences of this overcompliance. I'd love for you to share this with our audience, please. What does it mean, overcompliance? Well, what it means is that all officials subordinates to the leadership in this hierarchical system. Let's remember there's no bottom-up. Uh, elections, right? I mean, officials are completely um, uh, the agents of central authorities. They're hmm. they're not the agents of the voters the way they are in a democracy. So no local elections? No local elections, really. We, in they, a country of 1.4 billion? That's right. They Wow. They tried to introduce village elections in the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao eras. They still have the form of those village elections, but they've been basically hollowed out. And they never went any further. And the village isn't even a governmental unit. So they Mm. never went up. They never popularized township elections Mm. or county elections. And... Remember, that's how Taiwan democratized. Taiwan had a system of government that wasn't that different from the People's Republic, the mainland government, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because the Kuomintang moved to Taiwan. They set up a system which was very similar. But then they gradually introduced elections from the bottom up and ended up with the vibrant democracy we see in Taiwan today. Today, yeah. But um, in the mainland, the Communist Party leaders have been reluctant 
to give up control. So, uh, so we have reciprocal accountability, but the uh, officials in the Central Committee Selectorate have just rolled over. Yeah, so when they implement policies, when all the subordinates implement policy, they, to make their own careers, they have to satisfy their bosses, their immediate supervisors and above. So uh, what does that mean? That means that the that when you have highly concentrated leadership, as we do today in the hands of one man, uh, they want to prove their loyalty to him because the people who are the most loyal are the ones who get promoted and also the ones who don't get targeted by the anti-corruption purge. So um, there's a lot of pressure on these officials. And what does that mean? That means that when they carry out the policies of the leader, they overdo it because they want to get noticed as the ones who are following his wishes most fervently and doing oh just what he wants. They're really obedient children, if you will. Um, and the other thing is that they don't give him accurate feedback information about what are the costs of these policies, uh, because that might uh, get them in trouble and cause them problems with their careers. And we saw this in the Mao era, tragically, especially in the Great Leap Forward, where local officials yeah didn't communicate with the top level about the shortages uh, and the growing famine in the countryside and the information about the supply of agricultural products and industrial products was not accurate. And as a result, there was a kind of distribution crisis that caused the famine. So it's it's um, government officials that are sort of jockeying for position to display get their, get promoted. Is there also vigorous uh, interdepartmental, different institutions within the government that are jockeying for position? Let's say Coast Guard versus Navy, what have you, right? Sure, no, there's bureaucratic competition, but the, uh, the overcompliance is mostly about individual officials, but from the standpoint of the person who's the head of the Coast Guard Bureau, that those two things become merged. Yeah, are the same. Does this impact China's foreign policy? I'm thinking about Taiwan, Hong Kong, the various islands in South China Sea. Has overcompliance played any part in all of that? Well, under Xi Jinping, it certainly does, because mm -hmm. we have seen this wolf warrior diplomacy mm -hmm. in which Chinese diplomats, rather than 
behaving as diplomats normally do, which is to speak nicely in order to improve relations with other countries. You would think, and, yeah. Yes. Instead, they talk tough, they tweet nasty attacks, and that kind of aggressive rhetoric is something that they believe Xi Jinping enjoys <laughs> and, want, and wants them to do. And so I, and most strikingly to me, the current foreign minister and state counselor, who is going to be the number one foreign policy maker in Xi Jinping's third term, mm -hmm. we see that, um, already he's joining the Politburo uh, what he is a person who used to be the most pragmatic of diplomats very effective craftsman of China's um, Asia regional diplomacy to reassure its neighbors that it wasn't a threat but once he served under Xi Jinping, he's turned into the number one wolf warrior, basically repeating the slogans of Xi Jinping and uh, encouraging people under him to talk tough like that. That's that's dangerous. We're talking about China, not some small banana republic somewhere that could lead to international incidents. Um, we'll be back after a short break, Dr. Shirk, to talk about a fragile superpower. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right, for the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Shirk, you tell the story of Xi Jinping touring Shenzhen in 2012, his first year in power. Uh, and this is what you say in your book, quote, during the tour, Xi also gave a speech to local officials circulated inside the party, but never published, that expressed his fears about the fragility of CCP rule. The word fragility comes up many times in your book. In fact, you have a prior book titled China Fragile Superpower. I looked up the word in Google Dictionary. It means easily broken or damaged, and it also means flimsy or insubstantial, easily destroyed. It's, it's astonishing to me that she would actually use that word. Does it mean the same thing in Chinese? Well, actually, she did not use the word fragility. But mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. he did talk about is the fall of the Soviet Union okay. and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And he said that, uh, you know, it had such a large Communist Party, 
strong party, had popular support, and it had the military. And then in the end, it collapsed overnight. I, I'm not repeating his exact words, yeah. but this is the essence of what he said. He said he talked about the shock of the Soviet party collapsing overnight, uh, despite its superficial strengths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And said that uh, and warned against something similar happening in China in the most dramatic phrase was, in the end, nobody was man enough to stand up and support the party. Mm. Um, and he was talking especially about the, about the military, yeah. not just party members, but the military. So this sense of vulnerability and is something that is... Uh, felt, I believe, by all authoritarian leaders who don't have accurate information about public support of them or even the support of other political elites of them. And because elections, what is one of the most important benefits of elections? Legitimacy, is that it? It well, not just legitimacy, but the feedback about yeah. what people think about you, and that helps you estimate the risks. That's true. Of yeah. Some violent challenge to your rule. So, when you use the word fragile um, in your book, and you have a previous book, prior book that I just identified with that title. What do you mean by that when it comes to China? Are you talking about the sort of the inherent feeling of fragility or is there a sy systemic fragility? Well, uh, I'm certainly in fragile superpower and also in overreach. I am talking about the subjective perspective of the leadership and their sense of political vulnerability because they weren't elected. They're kind of self-appointed. Yeah. And they never know when they might be overthrown. So that uh, that's their subjective sense of vulnerability. But the system also lacks resilience. We thought it was aiming toward greater resilience with the ability to transfer power at the top peacefully in a regular manner uh, after Deng Xiaoping had introduced his reforms. But nowadays, I would say that China appears to be, I mean, China is superficially stable, but under the surface, there is deep, systemic fragility because uh, the other power holders, the other politicians in the party, I'm sure are frustrated with Xi Jinping's rule, with the over-concentration of authority that Deng had warned against, but is now being uh, revealed 
to persist under Xi Jinping, the lack of power sharing. They've lost their patronage, their ability to promote their uh, followers. They, uh, Xi Jinping doesn't listen to them. He makes, and he makes poor decisions. And he could throw them into jail for long terms, as he has many other politicians over the last 10 years. With right? respect to that point, I want to bring a little story yeah. that you share in your book. And it's sure. Actually, it was somewhat frightening to read it. You talk about a 2016, a January 2016 interview that you had with a relatively high official in China, but the interview doesn't go through. <laughs> what, do you remember that story? Of course. Yeah. Um, what happens? What happens is I get a phone call that I'm sorry, uh, the gentleman will not be able to meet with you tomorrow morning. And why is that? He's just been taken away by the discipline commission. Wow. And we know what that means is that He's being investigated and was later put in jail for a long prison term for corruption. But this anti-corruption uh, campaign, which under Xi Jinping, starting from the earliest days of uh, his rule, right up until, to the present, the eve of the party congress, the 20th. Mm -hmm. Congress has gone after very senior leaders, as well as now the estimate is close to 5 million officials in China. 5 million? Yes. Are they under house arrest or are they, is this, well, wow. Not, not all of them are in jail. Some of them may be simply disciplined within the party, fired from the party, lose their jobs, but many of them are in jail. And strikingly, uh, quite a few senior officials are in jail. Um, and so, um, you know, that does create a climate of fear, kind terror. of. Terror, yeah. Yes, terror. The, par the hmm. party elite is terrorized, certainly intimidated. By Speaking of intimidation, one of the things that you point out in your book is that some of this intimidation, without getting too deep into it, uh, including censorship, extends to people that live outside China. Um, which as I was reading your book, uh, I thought of this and I'm going to ask this. You have visited China many times since 1971. It occurred to me that unless China's internal politics dramatically change, you probably cannot visit China again. Am I, is this, is this a fair sense because of what you've written about China is, does the censorship go that far? Well, I certainly hope it's not true that I won't be able to visit China. Mm -hmm. I, I hope actually, so too. I actually wrote the book mm -hmm. within, with the thought that I want 
Chinese people to read my book. Do you think they will? They will have access. Uh, it to won't it? be. It won't be published in China, but yeah. uh, some people, intellectuals, professionals, will find way who, uh, and it may very well be published in Chinese in Taiwan or Hong Kong. Um, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Um, but I wanted. Chinese people to understand that this book is uh, not unfriendly to China. I mean, no, no, I'm it's factual. Person. You're narrating the history. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't come across. I'm a, yeah, ahead. I'm a person who, um, you know, has uh, loved studying China and watching it progress over yeah. so many years. That's evident I, from your book. Yeah, yeah, and I actually. Um, so that I hope the Chinese people will have a government that's kind of worthy of them uh, in the future. That's and a that great doesn't statement. necessarily mean, you know, full-fledged democracy, but it does mean a regime that is more responsive to their needs and desires and interests. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that's the direction things were moving in up until the mid-2000s. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Shirk as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Shirk, let's get to the title of your book, Overreach. What does it mean? Well, overreach means to take things too far, do things in an exaggerated way, in a manner that snaps back to harm yourself. So mm -hmm. a critical element in the notion of overreach it's actions that end up harming yourself self uh things that backfire self-defeating actions and you know that's the argument that china uh china's leaders have uh and the chinese system under xi but actually starting under the collective leadership of who are taking actions that are backfiring. Can you give an it. example of that? Yes. Um, well, let's go back to collective leadership, not just under Xi Jinping. Okay. Up until 2006, seven, the South China Sea was not um, a focal point of popular nationalism in China, certainly compared to Japan and Taiwan, which were hot button issues of mm -hmm. nationalism. And, uh, and the view of China was it was rising peacefully. It was becoming more capable, but it also was 
fitting into the world order pretty peacefully. And the United States was welcoming China to be of a course, yeah. stakeholder and play that kind of role. So despite the differences in political system and despite the fact that China was the rising power and America the in- incumbent superpower, we were getting along pretty well. But uh, then these various civilian agencies like the Coast Guard and fisheries and marine surveillance, they started uh, trying to enforce China's sovereignty claims in the South China Sea, bullying the Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam and the Philippines that also have legal claims according to the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea over parts of the South China Sea and the small rocks and islands within those coastal waters. So um, they started pushing around Uh, other fishermen and vessels from these other islands. And that completely changed the narrative about was China a peaceful, responsible rising power or was it an aggressive rising power? It was a big deal. We covered it here in in our news here in the West, in the U.S., yeah. So, and, And they brought along TV cameras when they did that. So before you knew it, it had become a focal point of popular nationalism, but it was not driven by the nationalism. It was driven by the bureaucratic interests of these various bureaucratic interest groups. Did that, let's go back to the definition of overreach that you shared with me at the beginning of this segment. So did that end up harming China, China's international interests? Oh, absolutely, because it changed its reputation. It caused not just the United States, but American allies and friends to start sailing with it through the South China Sea to establish our perspective based on international law that most of the South China Sea is international waters. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't belong to China. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It started the backlash that we now see because there have been subsequent actions that are similar by China, by the Chinese government. Um, and now we see efforts to balance a threat from China by means of coalitions like the Quad yeah. uh, agreement among the United States, Japan, India, and Australia, or AUKUS, an agreement to give Australia nuclear-powered submarines uh, that the British and the Americans are involved in. And, and you see, for example, Japan uh, now declaring that the defense of Taiwan is part of its own security national And that's a huge deal. Yeah, huge deal, huge deal. And none of that would have happened 
without China's overreach, uh, especially in recent years vis-a-vis Taiwan. Because interestingly, under Hu Jintao, who carved out the Taiwan relationship and really tried to develop it in a positive way, Mm -hmm. peaceful reunification. But once she came in, and of course, there was a different president in Taiwan, too. Um, Xi Jinping refused to speak to the Taiwan president and has started putting a lot of military pressure on Taiwan, as we saw, for example, uh, in it the way it acted after Speaker Pelosi visited there. Yeah. Now, Some, of course, I, I just want to mention- Please. This, that Speaker Pelosi's visit makes clear that overreach is not in isolation from actions by the rest of the world. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, uh, certainly American reactions in some ways have played into this overreach. Yeah. And some of the overreach that you have many examples of them in your book, Dr. Shirk, uh, some of the overreach incidents um, are sort of blusters that may look good to the Chinese national audience, but really they're international catastrophes, self-harm, as you pointed out. Dr. Shirk, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, Please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much for joining our program. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed uh, the conversation and appreciate the opportunity to bring the book to the attention of people who love history. That's great. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.